The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So uh, this week, Ecclesia, I'm going to ask you to pray for me because next Saturday night, I have a race that I have not at all trained for. Which really isn't the case. I trained a little. So here's, here's the backstory for all of that. I used to run a lot and I really enjoyed running and it was good for me. But then there's this thing that happened to me called um, getting old. And I started having some foot pain in my right foot. It was uh, metatarsals and they were in pain. And I've always had this knee problem. I had a knee problem in my left knee since I was a kid. And so I went to my podiatrist and we were looking at the foot and she did the x-rays and she said, when does it hurt? And I said, well, it really hurts a lot when I run. And she said, stop running. <laughs> Which I was like, wow, you went to medical school and everything. And so I just quit for a while, but then early this year, it started feeling pretty good. My knee was feeling pretty good and uh, my foot was feeling all right. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna inch back into it. So what I will do is I will register for just a 10K in the fall because I don't run outside in the summer because I'm not insane. <laughs> so I said, it'll be a 10K, it'll be at night in the fall, I will be fine. And so in the spring and early in the summer, I start getting ready for this race. And then about five weeks ago, I guess, I got an email from the race coordinator and they said, because of Tropical Storm Imelda, part of the 10K course won't be ready to go by race day. So we're downgrading all of the 10K runners to the 5K. And my first thought was, well, why not just have the 10K runners run the 5K course twice? Like, I'm not a genius or anything, <laughs> but it seemed like I could even put that together. And then I thought, well, I guess I can eat those cookies. So <laughs> after that moment, when I got that email, I just quit training altogether <laughs> because it's only a 5K. And like I've done a ton of 5K, like people do 5Ks on Thanksgiving that they haven't even trained for. 5Ks, nothing. Just about anybody could do a 5K. And if you get tired and it's a 5K, just leave. Just walk to your car and go home. Like that's not a big deal. And it was after that that I realized like what my motivation was for this 10K. And part of my motivation is like I've got a 5K time that I really like, and I don't think that I'll ever beat that 5K time, but I don't have a 10K time that I'm really excited about that I'd like to say, that's, my, that's the fastest I've ever done a 10K. And so I have been for my entire life just overly motivated by competition. Like I love competing. I compete against myself, I compete against other people. I compete against other people when they don't know that I'm competing against them, which makes it really great because I have beat so many people at things that they didn't know that they were competing at. 
but also really frustrating because I have lost some things. And that other person didn't even know they were competing and I still lost. Like I just compete at everything. So like I remember last year when, when my book hit number one in its category on Amazon, like I posted that everywhere, not because I wanted everyone to know it. I just wanted all my writer friends to know it. Like I won, you lost at least for these two hours that this was number one. And some of you are like that. Like you're like me where you are competing all the time. In every way, you're competing. And it's just, it's just something that drives you. And there are others of us who don't get that at all. Like, we are not competitive. We don't like competition. It doesn't energize us. Like, when my oldest daughter first started running cross-country in junior high, we were all at this cross-country meet. And she went and she ran with the junior high girls and she did fine. And we were waiting around because there was another kid from our church who was also in junior high. This was a boy and he was about to run his race. Only he had a really good chance of finishing in the top three or maybe the top five. And so he goes over to get started on the junior high race. And he meets a kid at the starting line who looks really nervous and really afraid. And he's kind of a bigger kid, and they start talking, and the kid tells him, he says, I'm just nervous. This is the first meet of the year. I'm not that fast, and I'm scared that I'm going to come in last. And our friend said, don't worry. I'll run with you the whole time. And his mother was furious. <laughs> Because she had been a high school track star and she was all excited about his first cross country meet. And then he did that. And we were standing there waiting for them at the finish line. And I think this is hilarious. Her, not so much. But he's not the kind of kid that gets energized by that. And what I realized is like, there are, for all of us, right, there are ways that we like to flex. All these little ways that we prove to ourselves and to the people around us that we really are worthwhile and good, that we should be ahead of the pack. There are little ways and big ways for each of us where we like to find and exercise our power. And it's different for everybody. For, for some of us, it's how much money we make. That's what makes us powerful and important. For others, it's our kids and what they've achieved, the things that they may have achieved that we didn't get to achieve. For others, it's reaching some sort of position in a company or being well-known. Like all of us really like power. And that's because we all believe the same thing about life. We all believe that power will make us happy. That if we can construct a life where we get to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it, where we want to do it, and how we want to do it, then we will fundamentally be happier. Wouldn't your life be better? Don't you think your life would be better if you had more power, like power over your spouse? They would just do what you wanted them to do when they wanted to cl clean up already. 
change, do the clean the dishwasher, whatever it is. Power over your kids, that they would do what you want when you want them to do it. Maybe your boss, your coworkers. Wouldn't your life be happier if you had more power? Plus, too many of us know what it's like to be on the wrong side of power. Because we've been emotionally manipulated or physically abused or sexually abused by somebody else's power. Someone who didn't exercise their power well and we ended up paying the price for it. And it's always going to be a part of our story, never going away. And we felt so exposed and vulnerable in those times, in those moments that we decided if someone's going to have power, it's going to be me. I'm never going to put myself in a situation where I have to be vulnerable to someone else like that again. And you know what? Science and psychologists have told us the reason that we believe power will make us happier is because it will. It just makes you happier. But in survey after survey, they discovered that there's more to it than that. In 2013, Psychological Science Magazine said that you are absolutely right if you think that your life would be better if you had more power, but watch out. This is what they say. Putting all this together, these studies suggest that if you are in a position of power, then it enables you to live your life on your own terms. And that authenticity creates a general sense of well-being. So power does make people happy. There is one thing to watch out for in all of this, though. While having power can make you happier, seeking power does not make you happier. There is quite a bit of evidence that people who spend their lives seeking power do not focus on the intrinsic joy of life. So people who seek power are actually less happy than those who do not. So one of the reasons that you're unhappy might be that you are seeking power. And the reason I want you to know that is if you've been around Ecclesia for the last couple of months, you know that we're in a series talking about figures from Christian history and what they have to teach us. And one of the ones that's been most instructive for me is a man named Henry Nouwen. And Henry Nouwen was born in 1932, and he was a Catholic priest, um, theologian, and writer. His name is probably pronounced Henri, but I'm from Mississippi, so we're sticking with Henry. <laughs> and Henry Nouwen was one of the most influential voices of the last century. He wrote 39 books that sold over 7 million copies, which means he did not have to post about it to his friends but he traveled the world, writing and teaching, 
He taught at the University of Notre Dame, Yale Divinity School, and Harvard Divinity School. And what's remarkable about him is at the height of his fame and celebrity, at the height of his power, he gave it all up. He gave it all up when he met a man named Jean Vanier, who we talked about last month. And Vanier came to Harvard to give a series of lectures. And he noticed that within now and that there was a deep sense of isolation and loneliness. And he invited him to come and be the chaplain and live at La Arche Community, where they partnered disabled women and men with physically able women and men to take care of them. And now and did. And what he discovered there, what Vanier and that community taught him, was a different view and a different exercise of power. And it's a view and exercise of power that's rooted in this teaching of Jesus from Matthew 20. So in Matthew 20, uh, Jesus has just finished telling his disciples that he's going to die. He's previewing the crucifixion and his own death. And you can imagine what a conversation would be like if someone was going to tell you that they're about to die. How you might respond to that, that is not how the disciples respond. This is what happens in Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, this woman must be the original tiger mom. <laughs> because she comes to Jesus and does something that I wouldn't do, maybe you wouldn't do. She comes to Jesus and asks for a favor. And she asks, in your kingdom, when you come into your kingdom, can my two sons sit at your right hand and sit at your left hand? Like, who does that? Well, I'll tell you who does that. Good mothers do that. Good mothers do what they think is best for their children. And the question is, why in the world do we think we know what's best? Because you know what we choose when we're thinking about what's best? We choose power. Like how, how many of you who are parents, or how many of you remember from your own parents how much time your parents spent thinking and praying about where you were going to go to college? or what you were gonna have for a career, or maybe what you were gonna go, to, where you were gonna go in high school, and the things that you were gonna accomplish either in the classroom or on the sporting field in high school. How many of you have known people who have worried about the preschool their children are gonna go to? As if you can color better in this school than in this school. <laughs> and what do we want? We want our children to be able to do what they want, when they want, where they want, with whom they want, the way they want. We want them to have power. And you may not walk up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, can my, can my kids sit at your right and left? But you're asking it every day. 
How can I arrange the world? These are my prayers. God, how can we have a world where my children have the ultimate amount of power? Because we want them to be happy. But Jesus responds. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So Jesus responds and he responds to them. He doesn't talk to mom anymore because these are grown men and he says, I'm going to handle it with you. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, yes, which is ridiculous. <laughs> what cup? What drink? Jesus isn't inviting these guys out for happy hour. They don't even know what he's asking. They just say, oh yeah, I can do that. Yes, we can and all that. I'm in. They don't even know what Jesus is asking for. They just know that it's power adjacent. They don't know what's going to be demanded of them or what it's going to require. Have you ever signed on for something? Jumped into something, dove headlong into something and didn't have the first clue what it was? but you sensed it was close to power. It was close to that thing that was gonna allow you to do what you want, when you want, where you want, with whom you want, the way that you want. And you didn't ask all the questions you needed to ask about this thing. You just wanted the power. Well, it's not just Jesus and this one family in the scene that Mark is portraying. This is what happens next. When the 10 heard it, they were angry with the two brothers. The other disciples hear this and they get angry. And who can blame them? Right? What's so special about James and John that they think they should be at Jesus' right hand and Jesus' left hand? What's so unique about them? How dare they? ask. How presumptuous of them who, to ask. They get angry. I'm going to tell you something about you and about everybody else that you know. Do you know why you get angry? You get angry when your world is not the way that you want it. That's what makes you angry. That's what makes everybody angry. And sometimes that's righteous. You can be angry that there are homeless brothers and sisters living on the street. You can be angry that there are people in the world who don't have access to clean drinking water. That can make you angry. You also get angry when someone gets in front of you in traffic. You get angry when the kids leave their shoes at the foot of the steps. The reason you get angry is because the world's not the way that you want it. And the 10 get angry at this question, because if James and John 
have all the power, then guess who doesn't? You go to work and you get angry and someone else got the power. And all these little ways that are every day to us, just insidious ways we crave, we seek power. And then as he's telling the story, Matthew slams together two of my favorite words in all of Scripture when they are together. But Jesus. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, if you've been around the Bible, if you've read Matthew, if you've been in church, you have heard this before. Jesus says, That view of power, that's what the Gentiles do. The best way for us to understand that, Jesus is saying, that view of power, that's what everybody else does. And they lord it over them. And some of us right now are struggling in our marriages, in our relationships, Because through either beliefs or series of events, one of us has more power in the relationship and they lord it over us. Just reminding us of every misstep, every mistake, all the things you didn't do perfectly. They just lord it over us. And some of us don't like to go to our parents' house for the holidays because in this relationship, it's always been about them having this power that they just lord over you. I paid for this. I sent you there. Some of us go to work and we can't wait to get out of that job because the people we work with, the people we work for, They have some power and they lord it over us. Jesus says, you know what that feels like. You know what it feels like to have other people out of their money or their physical strength or their position mistreat and abuse you. That's the way everybody does it. Not so with you. What's beautiful to me about this is that Matthew tells us that Jesus 
calls them to him. Jesus doesn't demand. Jesus doesn't threaten. Most of us don't know what to do when we want someone to do something without demanding or threatening. Jesus calls them because Jesus knows that's the way the world works. Jesus knows that most people exercise power poorly and everything that you're up against and says, when you have power, not so with you. And Jesus is inviting us into a new kind of relationship with power. Because nowhere in the scriptures will you find someone saying that power is inherently bad. Power is good if it's exercised for just causes. But Jesus has this little teaching right before he ascends to the heavens after the crucifixion, when he's looking at his disciples who are going to be left to carry out his mission. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait and you will receive power. And there is a difference between seeking power and receiving power. And this is why I am the worst person in the world to shop for for Christmas. Because I will think that would be a good gift for me for Christmas. I'll tell my wife and daughters, if you're going to get me something, get me that. And then before Christmas comes, I will go and just buy it myself. (laughs) And on Christmas, I don't receive anything. And that makes you less happy. (laughs) And that's why I am so struck by Henry Nouwen. Because Nouwen leaves Harvard when he could write his own check, do his own thing any way he wants. And he moves to Larch to be the chaplain there. And when he arrives there, they give him the most disabled person in their community to care for. And his name is Adam. And this is what Nowen writes about life with Adam. He says, it takes me about an hour and a half to wake Adam up, give him his medication, carry him into his bath, wash him, shave him, clean his teeth, dress him, walk him to the kitchen, give him his breakfast, put him in his wheelchair and bring him to the place where he spends most of the day with therapeutic exercises. He does not cry or laugh. Only occasionally does he make eye contact. His back is distorted. His arms and leg movements are twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy. And despite heavy medication, sees few days without grand mal seizures. Sometimes, as he grows suddenly rigid, he utters a howling groan. On a few occasions, I've seen one big tear roll down his cheek. Henry Nouwen lived at large the rest of his life. And this was his day, taking care of Adam when he could have 
been writing and speaking and traveling and changing the world. He took care of Adam. And when he was asked, do you think that this is a good use of all of your gifts, of everything that God's given you? Couldn't you be doing so much more? Now and said that it was in taking care of Adam that he learned to love. And we need to accept the fact that we are in a culture and maybe we are a people who have a great love for power and have forgotten the power of love. Because there's not a group of people in the world that would describe Henry Nouwen's days as sitting at the right and the left hand. And yet, for Nouwen, this was the greatest exercise of love. It was the releasing of power. This is what Nouwen says about power. You all know what the third temptation of Jesus was. It was the temptation of power. I will give you all the kingdoms of this world in their splendor, the demon said to Jesus. When I asked myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades in France, Germany, Holland, and also in Canada and America, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave into the temptation to power political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power. Even though they continue to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. One thing is clear to me, the temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Much Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. So what now and came to know, and what I want to suggest to you, and it, it is the right view and use of power that teaches us how to love. And we need to be very careful that when we are seeking power, that we are not at the same time rejecting love. Because it's Jesus, Philippians 2 said, did not consider equality with God power as something to be grasped. And so my prayer for you My prayer for me is that we will become the kind of people who learn to wait 
and receive power from on high. Let me pray for you. God, teach us how to receive power, to not be people who grasp and seek, but allow you to give shape and meaning and form direction to our lives. And we ask God that we be like Jesus, who condescended to those unlike him who gave up his power for the sake of love. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.